Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our passage for this morning is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, if you're not there already, you can turn to Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews 3. We'll actually be in the text here this morning. Last week, we jumped to what this text was quoting. We found ourselves in Psalm 95. We found ourselves in Exodus 17. Now, despite popular belief, those who may be getting closer to me, I don't strive for mediocrity, even though I give all appearance that that may be my goal. I just recognize my limitations. I understand that in some things, many things, I'm quite limited. Uh, One of those areas is around the house, whether it's projects or things outside or inside. I have a degree of skill, but it only goes so far. There's a ceiling to that. And so there's times when I have to consult the professional just to get some tips, um, some advice. And there's several here in the congregation that have helped me with various things around my place. And then there's other times that I have to call in the professional to actually do what I can't. So regardless of how many YouTube videos I watch, it just isn't happening. So I need to rely on the pro. One of those areas is the area of electricity. There's two main areas that I really just don't touch, and that's plumbing and electricity. One can completely destroy and flood my house, and the other one can kill me. I'm at least smart enough to know that there's spots on the the breaker box that if you touch that, you die. So that just says, you know what? I have a healthy fear of this whole thing. And because I don't know, I'm not going to start poking around where I don't know. So recently I had to call in the professional electrician. When I do that, they come in and give me his recommendation, his assessment, and then what do I have? I have a choice to make. I can either take into consideration what they've said and take some next steps so I can believe the professional and then set up an appointment and hire him to take next steps. Or I can reject his advice and call for a second opinion. And this is where we live, if we're honest. No matter what professional we need to see, whether it's a doctor, it's legal counsel, it's the mechanic, it is you know the electrician or the plumber, our posture is often one that's skeptical. We're easily dismissive and we reject the advice of the professional. We seek a second and third opinion, don't we? Typically, we do that until someone agrees with our preconceived ideas. Or we find someone to do it for free. Then it doesn't matter what I believe, they're doing it for free, and so that's out the window kind of an idea. Our next move is typically to self-diagnose the problem, and then we come up with some alternative route. So that's kind of the recipe that ends up happening often. Even though we're not skilled in, we're not trained in, we're not degreed in the profession of the expert, doesn't matter. 
we still believe that somehow we know better or that at least we can't trust their professional opinion. You know, if I don't know better, there's just something in me that is, you know, I can't trust them. So we pursue answers that suit our own appetites. Well, the author of Hebrews writes this lengthy exhortation to his audience to listen and believe the professional. In this case, he's calling his audience to listen intently to the voice of God who speaks directly to us through his Son. He's encouraging his audience to see and consider who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. This is what we've been hearing over the last several weeks in our study of Hebrews. Our focus this morning is on Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19. And what that does is it forces us back. What's the very first word in our text, therefore? It forces us back to the previous six verses. We heard this message preached a couple weeks ago by Pastor Pat. It forces us to consider Jesus. So we don't isolate, you know, we break down the text intentionally in preachable sections. But we don't isolate this section from what's preceding and what's following. We take this whole thing into consideration. And so Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is telling us to consider Jesus. Why? Well, because God has chosen to speak to us through His Son. It's in our best interest to listen. Hebrews has always already made it abundantly clear that we should pay very careful attention to what God is saying. Now, the target audience has a mixed history of valuing Yahweh and rejecting this very God that they claim to know, believe, love, follow. God has spoken throughout history in many ways and at various times through the prophets. He's spoken through creation. But now he makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the final word from God. This is the message that Hebrews is presenting to his audience. What are we going to do with Jesus? So the text that we're in is a lengthy exhortation. That's why we've broken it up to a few weeks. It's a lengthy exhortation to believe. It's a warning against considering any second opinion. What we see about Jesus what we hear about Jesus, what we're exposed to about Jesus, we're called to believe and draw near. So corporately, it matters how we respond. Personally, how you respond matters. So as we consider the text, it was just read for us, but in verses 7 through 11, this is the direct quote from Psalm 95. This is a poetic reminder to learn from history. So last week, we took some time to consider Psalm 95, since the author of Hebrews here uses this poetic visual to illustrate a very sobering reality. He says, listen and believe God. So by way of reminder, if you weren't able to be here last week or six, seven days in a row not being immersed in this stuff, guess what? It's easy to forget. So by way of reminder, the psalm is comprised of two parts. The first, it's a call to worship. Call to worship God as the people of his pasture, as the sheep of his hand. That's verse 7, Psalm 95, verse 7. And second, it's a warning, a warning against rejecting the rest that God provides. How did people do that? They responded as a people who go astray in their heart. So this call to worship, and it's a warning or a caution not to reject God, to listen to God and take him at his word, listen and believe. So this visual, the picture that was painted in Psalm 95, it really did dredge up a very dark scene from Israel's past, from their history, and it was meant to provoke them to a better response. What's going on with the current audience of Hebrews? They're facing a very dark scene. As believers in Christ, the gathered church, they're being pressured and persecuted. Now, this new way is attractional, and there's people who are making professions and attaching themselves to the local church. 
who may or may not be genuine believers. And so the response goes forth to the congregation today, today, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, take care how you respond to God. His final word to us is His Son, Jesus. God has spoken very clearly, without stuttering, and without impediment. Contextually, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is God's final word. And this morning in verse 7, it also identifies the Holy Spirit as communicating to us through the Scriptures. So God is speaking very clearly through His Son and through His Spirit. Listen carefully. We're called to pay attention, to be careful how we respond to what we're hearing. The warning that is illustrated in this text through Psalm 95, through Exodus 17, and we'll see through Numbers 14 is very intentional. So if you missed last week, grab the manuscript, watch it online, be reminded of it. But this this theme that you'll be hearing as an exhortation over and over is listen and believe. Now, since the beginning of time, parents have leveraged these three words in their parenting. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. They could say, listen and believe, because it means the same thing. And really, obedience or lack thereof really follows or flows from what we believe. My actions flow from what I believe. And so parents could say this, listen and believe. Rarely is it a matter in parenting that the child, the teenager doesn't hear. It's not, you know, oh, I didn't hear you. It's not that. It's really what are they going to do with this information now that they've heard it? And that's what we're up against. The child's actions demonstrate or prove what they believe. And so if they believe, they will respond in obedience. If they reject this, if they're like, I don't believe you, their actions will also reveal their heart. And so let's walk through this here. If they believe what they heard from their parents, if they believe, then they'll respond in obedience. I believe that you will follow through with that consequence if I don't obey. I believe you. So my actions are going to fall in line with that. I believe that I can trust you in this matter. I believe that you know best. Parents, wouldn't this be great to hear? By the way, we're never going to hear it, but wouldn't this be great to hear? I believe you know best. I believe that you love me. I believe that you're my authority. I believe whether or not I understand, whether or not I agree, whether or not I feel it, I believe. And therefore, I will respond with my actions. Well, conversely, the same is true. I don't believe you, and my actions will prove that I don't believe you. I don't believe you will follow through with that consequence if I don't obey. You know what? I don't even think you can count higher than three. Why? Because you keep going back to one. One, two, I mean it, two and a half, two and three quarters. I don't know any more fractions. One, they're like, I don't believe you're going to follow through with that. I don't believe that I can trust you in this matter. I don't believe that you know best or have my best interest at heart. I don't believe you love me more than I love myself. I don't believe you. I don't believe you're my authority. How many times you, I'm the parent, you're the child. I mean, how many times do we have that conversation? Ultimately, I don't understand your reasoning or logic. I don't agree with you. I don't feel it. And because I don't believe you, I will respond with my actions. Now, if we're honest, no child is thinking this deeply about obedience and disobedience. They are not connecting belief to obedience or unbelief to rebellion. They're just not doing it. And even though what I've just described is accurately what's taking place, whether I believe and respond in kind or I reject this message, I don't believe you and I respond in kind, that's what's taking place. This is the posture of the heart. Either I believe you and I trust you 
whether I see it or feel it or not, or I don't believe you, and I refuse to trust you, and I'm going to do my own thing. Ultimately, our kiddos are far too fixated on themselves, what they think, what they feel, what they want, to really consider the who or the why. But both the who and the why are speaking to the relationship. They don't understand who they're dealing with. This is the parent who loves them unconditionally. As broken, as flawed as we are, we love our kiddos, whether they're toddlers or teenagers. We love them. They're not processing the relationship in this exchange. They're not considering their identity in this relationship that we're talking about. Their focus on themselves overrides the relationship. And logic is taken prisoner by desire. That's what's really going on. What they want, what they think, what they feel, what they believe in this moment overrides all reason, all logic. doesn't matter who you are in this moment. They want this thing. And therefore, logic is taken prisoner by desire. And if we're honest, here's the gut check. The comparison and contrast between teenagers or kiddos and adults, it's really quite interesting because everything that I just shared about the parent-child relationship is equally true in our relationship as adults with our Heavenly Father. Even though the differences appear vast, they're really not. It's often just kind of sleight of hand. You know, look over here, it's optical illusion, it's smoke and mirrors. What adults, what we appear to have going for us actually works against us because we often get away with it. We're really sneaky. We have had experience. I don't know how old you are, but you have had years to hone your skills at deception, hiding, self-preservation, and the like. We can keep going. And I know this because as mediocre as I am at, at house projects, I can be a, a master craftsman when it comes at deception and sleight of hand and getting what I want. And what does this allow us to do? Navigate life selfishly subtle. We're really good at it as adults. We can posture a certain way. We can deflect. Oh, no, you didn't hear me right. We can dodge. And so add to this ability, this craft, this skill that we've honed at self-deception and getting away with it. Add to that the freedom to often be our own authority in many aspects of life. Add to it financial resources and time. We can really fulfill the desires of our heart as much as, or as little as we want to. And so, as a teenager, we thought being adult was glamorous and it was, you know, finally I get to be my own person and, and call the shots and do whatever I want. It's going to be liberating. It's going to be magical. And then we become adult and we're like, man, it's not really all that cracked up to be. And we tried to tell our kids that and we're like, you know what, don't grow up too fast. And yet, they are adamant and they refuse to listen to us and they insist on being just like us, <laughs> stubborn and bullheaded, Right? Turns out Uncle Ben was right. With great power comes great responsibility. And we could add to that with great resources, with great freedom, with great finances comes great responsibility. And so as an adult, there's just more weight on us. The consequences, the stakes are higher the very phrase that we use in our parenting to train our children, God uses those three words with us, listen and obey, or listen and believe. This is what God's doing with us, His children. Now, the variety of responses that we see kids employing as adults, guess what we've done? We've perfected it. So kids are sloppy with it. They think they're getting away with it. They think that somehow they've outsmarted us. And yet we believe that somehow God doesn't see. He doesn't know. 
or he's too busy with far greater responsibilities to really be investing in us. So like our kids, we fail to connect belief with action. We fail to connect right thinking with right doing and then ultimately right feeling. We become too fixated on ourselves as adults, what we feel, what we think, what we want to really consider the relationship that we have with this God. Who is He? Our identity in Him and how we live from that, not for it. You say, why this lengthy illustration to listen and believe? Well, in essence, I think the author of Hebrews is doing exactly what the psalmist was doing, giving a sobering warning for us to check our response to God. Today, if you hear his voice, this is what the text says, and you keep hearing this theme come back up. Today, if you hear his voice, how will you respond? Today, if you're sitting under the sound of my voice, if you're hearing the text, then the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. This word of caution is corporate, calling the gathering to respond in faith, to believe God. The word of warning is personal within the corporate, calling you, the individual, to respond to God. Will you believe Him? Will you take Him at His word? Will you believe? So the heart of this section is really in verses 12 through 15. After quoting Psalm 95, the author moves from illustrating this point to actually making application. Let's be reminded of the heart of this text. Verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So verse 12 starts with a phrase, take care. Could be translated, pay attention, caution, watch out, beware. And we're not oblivious to exhortations of warning or caution. We see them every day, all the time. There's tons of different signal signs, warnings, labels, information, announcements, you you fill in the blank. We don't always heed them, but we're immersed in them. They're surrounding us on a daily basis. There's signs everywhere. um, They're causing us to avoid danger. That's what they're calling us to, and choose safety. So, for example, what does red, yellow, green mean to you? Well, red means stop. Green means go, and yellow, that's up for debate, isn't it, really? Now, that could for some people, I know I can tell by your response, some of you, it means slow down, start braking. We're going to be coming to a complete stop when the yellow changes to red. For others, it's hit the gas and let's get through this thing. I'm guilty. That is, that is my posture, and I will defend that. I think it's the safest play most of the time. It really depends on how far you are away when you see that yellow. Okay, so we got to use some discretion and some judgment here, right? And then for whatever reason, whether, you know, not paying attention, just oblivious, talking, or whatever reason, sometimes, I mean, you've all been in the vehicle where that light hits yellow And we're almost halfway through the light and the brakes get slammed and everyone jerks forward, getting whiplash. You know, that's a play. Some people can, you know, respond to a yellow that way. But these are words of caution that we get. The majority of our interaction, even with our kiddos or teens for that matter, revolves around these words of warning, cautions. Don't touch that. Stop it. Listen. Pay attention. Look at this. Why are we always chirping warnings to our kiddos? 
care about their safety, don't we? We want them to be safe. We want them to learn lessons, but not the hard way. Learning the hard way can come with some real life-altering consequences. So why is the author in our text chirping this warning? He seems to be resounding it over and over and over again, beating the same drum. Why is he chirping this warning to us? Because the stakes are much higher. The consequences carry eternal weight. Look at verse 12. You may be in danger of having an evil, unbelieving heart, causing you to fall away from the living God. So he says, take care. Be warned. Caution. Pump the brakes. Listen to this exhortation. Listen to this warning. Now, is this warning this morning meant to cause doubt in the believer's heart and mind? No. Is this exhortation designed to scare believers, our congregation, into obedience? Absolutely not. Is this caution trying to generate fear of someone who is genuinely a believer losing their salvation and forfeiting eternity? Again, no. That's not why this is in here. So then who's the target audience? Isn't it the church? What's going on? Why is he writing this word of warning, this word of caution to the church? So anyone who openly identified with the church that this letter is directed to, and then consequently anyone who identifies with the gathering, the church, but anyone who gathers and refuses to believe Jesus, is the target audience of this text. Because in the early church, there are people who are attaching themselves to the way, to Christianity. They found it attractional. They found Jesus attractional. And you remember throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly reminding people, you're just following me because I'm feeding you. You're just following me because of the, the signs and the miracles. You were healed. You had this experience. You don't really believe. And the same is true in the context that this letter was written to the church. The same is true to this gathering. The target audience is, you may be here have made in, having made a profession of faith, but it not being genuine, true belief in Jesus. That's something that is lasting. It's something that Romans talks about as it's a heart belief and it is a verbal mouth confession. Ephesians 2 tells us that this is ultimately a gift from God. And so this text is speaking to the church, those who are gathered, those who are attached to this gathering and yet may not be truly trusting in Jesus as their confidence, as the apostle and high priest of their confession. And so let's talk about what this text means, and then let's speak to the tension that a text like this can generate. So the caution. On the positive side of the exhortation, this is an encouragement to believe Jesus. And those of you who have believed Jesus, it should be an encouragement to keep believing Jesus. Your hope is not in vain. Your confidence is not wasted. You will find yourself at the promised rest, and we'll talk more about this rest next week. But on the negative side or the warning side of the exhortation is a caution against rebelling in unbelief. Don't fall away in unbelief. The text is warning us. Don't harden your heart through unbelief. The deceitfulness of sin hardens hearts, dulls hearing. It distracts the believing from the gospel. Therefore, the sin being addressed specifically in Hebrews 3, and as we're going to see all throughout Hebrews, there's only one or two instances where it's not addressing this, but the sin that Hebrews is addressing is the sin of unbelief. It's not just sin in general, although we can make a strong argument for sin in general is ultimately unbelieving. You know, I don't believe God in this, and so I'm going to do whatever I want or respond a certain way. But he's focusing in on this unbelief, rejecting God's final word to mankind of Jesus 
being the answer to sin and death, Jesus being the gospel, Jesus being God's final word to humanity. And so he says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's verse 12. That word fall away is the word apostatize. It's the same word that was read during our call to worship in Luke 8.13, the parable of the sower. It's speaking of the gospel that fell on the rocky soil. Listen to Luke 8.13. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. By all accounts, that is the proper response to the gospel, receiving it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Same word the author of Hebrews is using. Initial response, receive it with joy, but it's not a genuine faith. How do we know? Because there's no root in them and they fall away. The exhortation in this appeal to everyone who's present is this. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This hardening of heart and mind, it's sprinkled all throughout our text. In this chapter, it's verses 8, 13, and 15, and as we'll see next week, it's in chapter 4, verse 7. And it's a heart that persists in unbelief. We know that while sin, it it causes consequences in us all the time anyway, but in general, it produces a dryness of soul and a hardening of heart. The deceitfulness of sin in this context is the sin of unbelief. It's refusing to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 3, verse 1. It's refusing to hold fast to Jesus as our confidence, as our boast, as our hope. In chapter 3, verse 6. And so this follows on the heels. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Believe Jesus. Respond to him. He is our confidence, our boast, and our hope. And then he goes into this warning. Take care, lest there be in any of you this evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to reject Jesus in unbelief. This warning is so sobering because it's so serious. If you reject Jesus, there is no other hope out there for you. Cling to whatever religion you want. Fill the hole in the void with whatever you want, but it will not suffice. This is your only hope, your only confidence, your only confession is Jesus. And that's why this appeal is so strong to consider Jesus. Looking at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold this confidence firm to the end. Who are those who share in Christ? This was already mentioned a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Those of you who share in Jesus are those who believe. It's those who continue to believe. It's those who consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of their confession. It's those who believe today. And our text continues to reinforce this concept of today. But that also calls into question the tension that's in this text. And we can be honest about the tension in this text. In passages like this, and we're going to see more in Hebrews. This is not an isolated portion. There's going to be a few more that we have to wrap our mind around. But the tension we often face comes from a few different sources. One, it's our initial reading of a text. 
we're breaking this down into smaller section, but if we isolate this from the rest of its context, then we can really make this say whatever we want. And our initial reading of the text can leave one with the impression that believers are in danger of losing or forfeiting their salvation. But we're not isolating it from the rest of Hebrews. We're studying it within its context, and we're also not isolating it from the rest of the Scriptures. And so we're comparing these things. The other thing is how other pastors, teachers, theologians use this text. We're not leveraging this text to try to get our congregation to comply in some form of obedience and checklist that we want, to fo- want you to follow and, and submit to. Or else you're in danger of losing, forfeiting. What? No, we're not doing that with the text. But often the one that hits us here and causes confusion here is our experience, right? We draw certain conclusions based on our limited vantage point. We just do. And the rub is, there's someone that we know, it's a personal experience, we have a relationship with them, it's usually someone that we love who's made a profession of faith, and by all accounts it looks like they are believers, they attend local church, that kind of stuff, and at some point they reject Jesus, they no longer believe the gospel, and they no longer come to church, and they say, I'm done with this thing. What do we do with that? That's where the tension in a text like this meets. And we're like, well, we tried to decipher and figure out whether they were saved and lost their salvation, or we, we leveraged texts like this to create certain scenario or equation and say, well, this is probably what happened. So how should we process this tension? How should we be thinking about a text like this when we, a person comes to our mind? Real people who we love, we know, we care about, we're going, well, this text is speaking about them. And it may be speaking about them. But I wanted to offer a few words of caution as we approach a text like this, and there's going to be more, and that's why I'm laying them out right now. How should we approach this tension? Well, context matters. You hear that a lot from the pulpit. We care a lot about that. But we have to consider the historical context of the original audience. As we study any passage of Scripture, what's going on? What were they facing in their context? What were they dealing with? What was the situation historically? And for us in this, these believers are dealing with persecution. We should also consider the literary context, not just the historical context, but the literary context. We are studying a portion of this letter. What preceded this? What's following this? How are we to understand this passage within its context of this section, but then in light of the entire letter itself? And then what passages is the author quoting? How is he using other scripture, comparing scripture with scripture? What's he trying to accomplish here? So context matters. We have to approach passages like this contextually. We also have to consider what is our ultimate source of authority. Is this authoritative or not? Who's the author? Is it God? If it's God, and this is his word, and this is his authority, doesn't he get final say? But what do we pit this against? We, we walk cautiously on this, but what often takes precedence is our experience. Well, we know this person who made this profession. How does that jive with this text? Well, who's our authority? Our experience? Or is it God? Is it his word? And then I want us to approach the tension with a sense of humility. And this is a a really tricky thing to do because we're all naturally humble, right? You know, I'm the most humble guy here. Can we be honest about our limitations? Can we do that? That's tough to do. I look in the mirror and I see limitations in my life, in my relationships. We forget that we're finite creatures. We forget that God isn't finite. 
But can we be honest regarding our limitations? Am I omni-anything? Am I omnipresent? Am I omnipotent? Am I omniscient? Do I know it all? No, I don't. So am I judge and jury on another person's spiritual condition? I don't know whether you or are or are not a believer. I do not know. I assume. I can draw certain conclusions based on you voting with your presence to be here, conversations and interactions that we have, you sharing your testimony of when you realize that you can't save yourself and do anything to reconcile this relationship, and you believe that God can, and He did that through Jesus, which is what Hebrews is telling us, believe Jesus. Hearing your story, your profession of faith, I take it by faith, right? And you, me. But I'm not judge and jury on your spiritual condition. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says when considering this kind of a posture. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says this starting in verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the gospel, okay? What was hidden and concealed in the past is now revealed here to the church. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted just because my vantage point's limited, Paul says, and I don't know anything against myself. It doesn't mean I'm not guilty. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God." What is Paul saying? Let God be judge, jury. It's not for me. It's not for us. And so the appeal to the church in this section is to believe Jesus. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know why you attend this gathering. I don't know every story in here. But God does. So before we're dogmatic about assessing the spiritual condition of another person and pronouncing judgment, let's pump the brakes on that a little bit or a lot of bit and let God be who he claims to be. As the study in Hebrews wraps up, the author's revisiting his opening illustration, and he's trying to further drive home his point. And so in verses 16 through 19, he's reminding us of a few things. So we'll connect some dots here, and we'll make some closing application. He's bringing us back to the example of the nation of Israel and their rebellion. The nation of Israel was notorious for rebelling against God. We've only considered a sampling. We looked back and Psalms, we look back in Exodus just to consider a little bit, but their history reveals their heart posture towards God and His Messiah. And we're reminded today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear His voice, be careful in how you're going to respond. This comes up several times in our passage, the rebellion. It seems to identify a single event. That single ultimate final rebellion is found in Numbers 14, where the nation rejected God's provision of rest. They were on the precipice of going and claiming the land, the promised land, the land that was just waiting for them. And yet they rejected it. A pattern of rebellion preceded the rebellion. And we're, we're going to explore Numbers 14 a little bit more next week as we consider this rest. So what was the consequence? We'll just highlight the consequence for rejecting the rest of God. What is this final rebellion? Well, that's what the author's doing here in verses 16 through 19. He's leading his audience to consider the ultimate consequence 
in verse 19, in rebelling against God where they were unable to enter rest due to unbelief. So look at the verses here. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who heard the word of God, the message of God, and still rebelled against him? Well, was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So what is the rebellion that's going on throughout this text? It can be boiled down to one word, unbelief. That's what's going on in this text. Refusing to believe God within the context of Hebrews is to reject God's final word of his son, Jesus. The author states unbelief here in this passage in a variety of ways. Here's the highlight reel within this text for unbelief. These are all working synonyms here. Hardening our heart, rebellion, testing, and provoking God, going astray in our hearts, having an evil and unbelieving heart, falling away, sin, disobedience. How many more ways can he say the same thing? Everything that's going on in this passage, the disobedience isn't, oh, I lied again, or I, you know, whatever, I did X, Y, and Z again. No, the disobedience in this text is rejecting Jesus. It's unbelief. And we're going to see that theme picked up. We have to be reminded of that from this passage because as we go several chapters later, which means weeks and months for us, we're going to be reminded of disobedience, of sin. And it's all coming back to this idea of unbelief and rejecting Jesus. So as we wrap this up here this morning, the appeal to the audience in Hebrews is to listen to God's final word to rebels to see the grace and mercy on display through the sacrificial death of Jesus, to consider the Son's faithfulness on our behalf as our high priest of our confession, lest we respond in the rebellion of unbelief. That's the call. Listen to Jesus. See Jesus. Consider Jesus. And now how will you respond to Jesus? The call is today, believe. Connecting the dots here, the appeal to listen and believe Jesus was directed towards an audience that was facing persecution. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. As we continue to pray for the persecuted church, they get this. This text would be refreshing and sobering to them. They needed to be encouraged regarding who their confidence was in. They needed to be reminded that their belief in Jesus would end in rest. Why did they need to be reminded of that? Well, because the circumstances on the horizontal were dark, and it could be really easy to believe, where is God in this? Can he be trusted? Do I believe him? And the wrestling that takes place there, they needed to be encouraged that believing in Jesus is sufficient, regardless of what they're facing on the horizontal regardless of the pressures, regardless of the circumstances, today, believe in Jesus. Today, keep believing. That's not different for us. I mean, apart from the persecution, which is massive, right? That's intense. We could face that at some point. And if and when we do, what will our response be? What will the encouragement we'll need to hear is, believe Jesus, keep believing Jesus. We know that this life is short, and yet it's, it's lesser things that distract us from him in that. But this is also an encouragement to the believing community, and it should cause them to value the gathering. They're not alone in facing the realities and pressures that they're under. Keep believing Jesus. Be encouraged. He is sufficient. And so what do we do on a weekly basis? As we gather, we value this time. We value one another. We're journeying through life together with its pressures and trials and circumstances and blessings and joys, all of it together, and what unites us is Jesus, and we value this gathering. 
But the sobering warning is just because you're present doesn't mean you're part of the believing community. That's the sobering reality in this text. Today, I have no idea who is and who isn't. However, today, if you have ears to hear and if you have eyes to see Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, take care how you will respond because the consequences are of an eternal weight. Will you believe Jesus or reject Jesus? That's the call from this text. How will we respond? Let us pray. Father, as we consider this text, it's an exhortation, this warning, this reminder for us to take in everything that the, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, has written up to this point. He reminds us to listen to Jesus as the final word from you, to see him clearly as our Savior from sin and death and the one who is victorious over sin and death and the devil, the grave, for us to consider you and respond believing. Father, I don't know the hearts of anyone here. You do. And if there's anyone here today who's just going through the motions or think religion is probably a good thing for them to raise their family in and, and bring them to church, but they've not confessed Jesus as their Messiah. They've not confessed Jesus as their high priest and apostle of their confession. They're not believing Jesus only for forgiveness of sins and restoring us to a right relationship with the Father. May today be that day. Open their ears to hear and eyes to see and their hearts to respond in faith, in belief. And for those who are here, which I believe to be the majority, who are believing, who are confessing Jesus, may our hearts be refreshed and encouraged that Jesus truly is enough, no matter what we're facing, no matter the circumstances, and the fact that you've called us together as a gathering, as a people that we're not alone in this journey. I pray that we would value the gathering. So continue to refresh us with your word, with your presence, and with the encouragement of this fellowship. In Christ's name, amen.